Photography in one form or another exerts a great influence on our daily lives. An illustrative photographer must be imaginative. I put the camera up against the window of a barber shop and photographed through the glass. And then these places began to look like stage sets to me. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and this is Magic Hour, the show that delves into the minds of photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. Today, I sit down with Dwayne Michaels, a veteran of the medium, who at 84 is still making new work. Dwayne is best known for his sequences, his iconoclastic combinations of image and text, and for his innovative style to portraiture. He's a self-taught photographer, and his work broke away from the established photo traditions of the 1960s. Dwayne has had an eclectic career, from his early work being exhibited at the MoMA in New York, to doing commercial and editorial work for Vogue and Esquire. He's been with his partner Fred Gorey for a little over 55 years, and they live together in New York City. I came here in 1955, after I got out of the Army. I was 23, yeah, that's correct, I was 23, and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I came because I loved books and magazines, and I needed to go to an art school, and the only one I could I've ever heard of was Parsons, and that was a big disaster. I dropped out after the first year because I wasn't learning anything at all. Yeah. And was there uh, were photo books uh, thrown mm. at that mix, or not at no, all? No, no. As a matter of fact, there were very few photo books, if any. Right. It was not like today. It was big news when Abaddon's uh, observations came out, and and the Bresson books with the. Matisse covers that was huge, and that, those were like ten dollars. Wow! And that was considered a lot of money. I bought. I was working at Time Inc. doing promotion before all their magazines. Right there at when they used to be there at the you know right at the skating rink, and so I used to go on for lunch and into the French bookstore, and I went in one day, and there sitting on the top was uh, the Americans, the Robert Frank. Original book published by Dale Pierre in Paris. I looked at it and I just, I was just thrilled. I mean, I was overwhelmed. I was, I just couldn't believe the elegance and the insight and the pure beauty of that book. And it was five bucks. Did you and buy it? I, absolutely. When you when you first started off taking pictures, was he someone you 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 tried to emulate at all? No, because I wasn't thinking photography. I had no. I didn't even own a camera. But when I found out you could go to Russia, I thought, well, that's amazing. And my principle had always been to have adventures. Uh, I love the concept. Life is an adventure. Yeah. And I love the concept of adventures. I like doing what I've never done before. In fact, I'm having a very adventurous old age. I've done so much work in the last 10 years, which would take me back to 74. Yeah. So that, you know, that's old. Um, and now making these films, you know, doing 10 films in six months. That's unbelievable. That's a lot. It's yeah, it is a lot. Yeah. You know, I came across, you know, it's, it's an interesting connection because mm-hmm. you were just talking about Robert Frank and now being your age and, and still being uh, really productive. 
I came across this really interesting uh, Robert Frank quote, and I wonder if you ever heard it. I'm going to read it to you. This is from a book, I think it's called Nova Scotia to New York. and I it, never saw it. Yeah. It's a collection of all his old letters and correspondences. Oh. And I think he even wrote like a little, uh, I don't know, a column in Creative Camera. He did. I was going to mention that if you didn't know it. Yeah. And this is this is one of them. Uh, Dwayne Michaels is strongly influenced by Magritte's Man with a Newspaper, painted in 1927. It's at the Tate Gallery. It's the model for Dwayne's photographic sequences. I think Dwayne is a good photographer who has never given in to fashionable currents. He has pursued his ideas and got them published without concession. His photographs look to me as if he will not give up. He tells me how silent it is when you photograph the heart. Wow. I was always so um, thrilled by the absolute perfection of his work and his insight. But he wrote an article in one of those columns. It's so funny you mentioned it. I was telling a friend of mine about this recently. But he wrote a piece about going into the lunchroom at MoMA in those days after he divorced his wife and seeing her come into the into the cafeteria with another guy and she didn't see him and he sat across the room and watched the two of them in conversation and I assume laughing and having a good time and how he felt about that. I thought, God, that's so elegant. I love the word mm. elegance and I don't mean elegance in terms of Vogue magazine. I mean the elegance of nature, the kind of... Uh, subtle simplicity of a thought or and even what he just wrote you know was very nice but you knew him or uh no no, no you I never knew him no i never knew i i've met him on three occasions and recently i ran into him um my favorite restaurant in new york is uh, noho star and uh, i was about to leave and robert frank walks in and it was like oh it's Greta Garbo. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, that happened to me once when I came to New York. I was walking down the street with a friend of mine, and he said, don't look, don't look. Here comes Greta Garbo. Where's Greta Garbo? And this old lady came toward us, and I looked and looked and looked, and it was Greta Garbo. Wow. So when he walked in, I thought, oh, Robert Frank. And though he sat down, and I was about ready to leave, and then his wife came in June, and she sat with him. And I thought, I have to say something. And every time I've met him three occasions, I'm Mr. Motormouth Michaels, and I, I'm struck dumb. I find it's incredible how you still have that, how you still, you're still yeah. able to get that feeling. Like, it doesn't <clears throat> fade with age. It doesn't, no. it's like... No, no, it certainly doesn't. And, uh, I mean, I admire him more than ever. When you did first start to photograph, mm-hmm. or you had, there was the Russian trip, how did you get past Robert Frank? How did you start doing your own I thing? I was never enthralled by him i never wanted to be robert frank mm-hmm. i never wanted to be a street photographer mm-hmm. i mean i did that that was always entry level what i wanted to be which i discovered first i just want to take portraits mm-hmm. you know, i had no i knew nothing about photography and i knew the biggies you know i'm certainly aware of photography who wasn't aware of pen who wasn't aware of avidon but i had you know they were just not they were not in my horizon. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'd like to do portraits, you know, and that was my entry level. And everything else uh, came out of frustration with the medium. But luckily, and I always feel guilty when I'm in a photo school, saying I'm glad I never went to photo school, <laughs> because they have to teach you something, and they teach you rules. 
and um, and then unlearning is the worst thing. It's so much more difficult to unlearn. So luckily, I never learned the rules. I never wanted to be uh, as much as I loved Frank. I could never do that. Th those weren't my instincts. Mm -hmm. But then the question was, what were what were my instincts? And uh, I liked to write. When I was in high school, I was a, a news editor of the school paper, and and I would enter the scholastic contests, you know, and never won anything. But I always had those instincts. And uh, going to Russia, I didn't consider the photographs uh, important. I mean, I didn't go there to take pictures. I went there uh, thinking, well, I'm going. I should take pictures, you know, on a trip. And uh, once I came home, I treated the photographs. And there was an art director named Henry Wolf, and uh, he was the great art director. It's not like today where there are 3,000 magazines. You know, there weren't very many, and Henry was the one everybody wanted to work for and emulate. I mean, he was the great tastemaker, and I heard that he was looking for an assistant. He went from Esquire to Harper's Bazaar. So I made a magazine called Contact, the idea of being in contact with life, being contact, in contact with art, on contact with literature, contact with theater, whatever. And I did a Russian issue, and I did three covers. And the Russian issue, I used all my own photographs. And so when I showed the work to Henry, he said, well, who took these pictures? And I said, well, I did. And he said, well, you should be a photographer. And I never got the job. And then when I went to see Lou Silverstein at the time, it was the same story. He said, who took the pictures? And, and I didn't get the job uh, as a designer, but they both called me back later was amazing. So that was the year of my amazement because, and then I, once I could take pictures, you know, photographs and make a living or whatever, I then began to think of photography not just as that, but I had ideas that I wanted to illustrate, but I didn't have a format. And then I did a, an exercise project which I called Empty New York, and I would go out early in the morning and photograph the city empty. And I always tell the story about in the barber shop, I saw the little white jacket, you know, that the barbers wear. Yeah. And it was on a hook. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. He comes in, and he puts on his barber costume, and then he does his barber act, you know. Yeah. And, and simultaneously, I was looking at Ache, I mean, Balthus' uh, paintings. And in the MoMA, there's this great painting of a street. I think it's called La Rue. It's a real street, but it's, it looks like a stage set. And all the people crossing the street are posed artificially. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It wasn't a reportage reality moment of a street. It was this stage set street. So I'm, I'm looking at empty New York. I'm looking in stores, and they begin to look like stage sets to me. Then I look at Ache. I mean... Uh, Aches too, but who was very big in my head. And those empty street scenes led me to doing Empty New York. And then with about this street scene, peopled by fake poses, this all was all came together. Right. And I thought, well, I should just invent my own little theater. So 
So that's how sequences uh, yeah. came to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I got a and I got a couple guys from the gym. And the first one I did was called the Violent Act. But it was about a man coming up behind another man and hitting him on the head mm-hmm. and knocking him down, which is essentially what wars are, except they're three million men killing three million men. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially the act of violence of one person against another one. Uh, and after I did the first few, I thought, well, what else could I possibly think of? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? And it's the same thing with the movies. After I did the first film, you know, I thought, what else could I possibly? So, ten films later, and they're all about different subjects. It's it's the same way of approaching work. You know, right. no two are like, and they're all about. You know, and it's very liberating. All the work has liberated me. Were you showing those uh, right away, early on? In those days, there were no galleries, and there was not, no place to show. But I did go up to uh, MoMA, and I showed them to Peter Bennell. And as a result of that, uh, I got uh, an exhibit at MoMA. Uh-huh. And it was very interesting because three things happened. There was a new gallery called the Underground Gallery, and I did a show there uh my first show was portraits I did in Russia, but the second show was sequences. And in Switzerland, there used to be a magazine called Camera. It was published by a Swiss printing company as an example of their work. Beautifully designed. The editor was Alan Porter, who was an American from Philadelphia. And he gave me a practically a whole issue with sequences. Yeah. So suddenly, I was going to have a show at MoMA. The book came out of sequences, camera, that everybody saw. And I had a call from Doubleday who saw saw the Swiss camera, and they said, uh, we want to start doing photo books. We'd love to do a book of your sequences. So that was the trifecta. I mean, at one moment, <laughs> everything happened. That early MoMA show, that must have been, I mean, or just even that trifecta, it must have been huge. For me, it was amazing. I went from zero to fuck you in 20 seconds flat. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was, <laughs> you know, I accelerated. I, it was just huge. I just could And then I was getting commercial work simultaneously. And all this within, I don't know how many years, but I, a very short time. Yeah. And I had no history or credentials yeah. as a photographer. Now, you hear some photographers, you know, talk about going, you know, either going to see Tchaikovsky or going yeah. to MoMA and showing their pictures yeah. early on. And even the way you just described it, it was very, you know, very casual. Like, oh, I'm a photographer. I took pictures. Why not go to MoMA and show them? Yeah. yeah. Well, where did you show them at that time? But there was, it's this very small club. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially uh, dedicated to the photo tradition. And I was, uh, myself and uh, Les Crims, Jerry Ulsman, were people who were starting to do other things with photography. But it was such a small world that everything was sort of uh, heresy mm-hmm. because everybody knew what photography was. Yeah. As a matter of fact, who was it? Oh, Minor White, I'm sure this is accurate. He said that all the great photographs have been taken. They're done. They're all taken. What we need to do now is to develop a great audience of appreciators of this great work. So when you went to photo school, you should learn how to appreciate the great photographers. But it's over. It's all done, which I thought was stupid, <laughs> insulting, you know. Yeah. Photography will be a minor art if it doesn't change. Yeah. 
And that's why people like myself and the other people I mentioned were important. I mean, it's funny when people talk about, you know, things being dead, photography is dead, this medium is dead. It's such a ridiculous thing to say because, I mean, it all it's all about, it's all ideas. Exactly. And, or the painting yeah. is dead. You always hear the painting is dead. Right. You know. Yeah. Because, and then and then 20 years later, you look back on the last 20 years and it's you see, yeah. obviously, you know, there's yeah. a lot of garbage and then there's yeah. all, a lot of incredible work too. So We so. call it Drek. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you wanted to know the appropriate uh, term right no it's true and if it's a living viable art it has to change by nature when i look at a photograph i wonder what is this picture about Mm -hmm. oh it's a guy standing in the snow all right i know what snow looks like i know what a guy looks like so Mm -hmm. i mean if you start asking what pictures are about there's not much to them there's not much I always maintain I want I don't want photographers to tell me what I already know. Mm-hmm. You know I want photographers to tell me what I don't know. So don't show me pretty sunsets. I know what I do pretty sun. You know I mean it's and the only thing I have to give to you is me. Yeah. You know photographers are always photographing other people's faces, other people's rooms, other people's lives, something they know absolutely nothing anything about, and their own truth, which is their own truth. They wouldn't even think about looking so what i did was in a sense is to turn photography like a glove inside out mm-hmm. we were always wearing a glove like this yeah but then if you turn it inside out i was doing the interior of the mind so to me photography's in the mind it's not about the eyes is that <clears throat> you know based on that on on those thoughts is that how you started to combine writing with photos? I began to write and to do sequences out of the frustration with the medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, Did writings and sequences uh, come no, simultaneously no, or writing was no, after? No, later. Later. The sequences came first and suddenly, you know, I didn't need the decisive moment. I could have the moment before and the moment after. So it gave me wiggle room. Mm-hmm. You know, after the guy jumps over the puddle, maybe when he fell in the water, that was even better. <laughs> okay. So what if we photographed him taking a leap in midair and then landing and then smashing and getting wet. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? So I've always, first of all, I never worked for an audience. I never worked for anybody. I never thought, are they going to like this? As a matter of fact, the first thing now doing these movies, I've had to do so much collaboration because I've always done everything by myself. And now that I'm old, uh, I need help. But that's okay because... It's the destination, not how you got there. Right. For me, it's... So if, even if I have to have three people help me now, as long as the result, I get the same excitement right. when I did it by myself. And you're still going. Yeah. And it seems like you're still inspired as ever. Oh, I don't... Yeah, I, I uh, inspire myself. So I've always been the source of my work. Right. So I could sit here in my living room and invent the universe. Most of your work, I mean, all of your work, like you were just describing, comes from yourself. Do you think that chance, or does chance play a big... Everything. Big role, yeah? Oh, chance, you know, serendipity, kismet. I love it, you know. I took a chance by going to Russia. If I hadn't gone to Russia, I'd never been a photographer. Mm-hmm. I, you know. And when I began to write on photographs, getting back to your earlier question, that came out of the frustration of the medium. So sequences... I was always interested in life after death, so in the first book I did Death Comes the Old Lady. Uh, I did uh, The Guy Becoming a Star, you know, it's called The uh, Human Condition. 
uh, I, d- I did the Spirit Leaves the Body. I would have to go to a funeral home and sit there forever waiting for a spirit to leave the body, <laughs> you, know, you know. So I, I made my own spirit leave uh, somebody else's body. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How did you come up with Things Are Queer? That was very interesting. I was walking across 19th Street on yeah. the west side, and I went by a shop, which turned out to be a um, a fire extinguisher company. And in the window was this little bathroom. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it, and it was so real. And I went inside, and I spoke to the guy, and it turned out his grandfather was a plumber, and he had a plumbing business. And in the shop, he had that little bathroom as a display but he wasn't a plumber anymore but he had the display and so I got so excited about it and I went home and I started thinking about it wouldn't it be fun to I had no idea what I was going to do with it but it was just I was just so enthralled with the reality of that and uh, so that's just because I got excited about the looking at this real looking bathtub hmm. and then just one thing led to another you came yeah. up with the idea and then and, I, and then I had to get back in the window because I had to take a picture first and then come back and put the picture on the wall, which wasn't in the original bathroom. So when I went back, I was afraid the guy wouldn't let me in the window again. You know, like, uh-huh. you here? Now, look, I let you in the window once. How many times? You know, <laughs> but luckily he let me. But he wouldn't, if you notice, the bathtub's very dusty. He wouldn't let the sink, he wouldn't let me even blow the dust off. He said, just don't touch anything. <laughs> and I thought, oh, what if I have everything but that one photograph I can't get, you know? Yeah. And it worked. It worked. I love that sequence. Yeah, I do too. It's yeah. always interesting. Every My work has a shelf life because every generation that encounters that is going to find it interesting. Yeah. And every generation who sees Death Comes the Old Lady is going to find it interesting or The Boogeyman. Yeah. Or I Build a Pyramid. These are all things that, you know, that uh, are just, you don't see. Right. Do you think that, that, um, good work should pin down exactly what you're trying to say or should have more of an open-ended quality or both? Depends. Poetry by its nature is open-ended. With Gary Winogrand's picture of a black guy and a white woman and they're holding a chimpanzee, which has always made me angry. I think it's such an insulting picture, such an insulting picture. Uh, Well, that's a fact. Mm-hmm. You know, and you could even say the day he took it and when he took it, what time, and all these things. But when I do something like um, the Boogeyman, uh, that's not a fact. Uh, poetry is not a fact. Poetry is an atmosphere. It's a suggestion. It's a, it's a, it's a flavor of something. And what makes it so beautiful is that it's not a fact, and, and the viewer brings to it something. So the viewer would bring to uh, 
their version of a boogeyman. I remember my boogeyman. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid one night, I was got in bed, and opposite the bed was a chair, and on the chair there was some clothing, which I discovered in the morning were my old clothes. Mm -hmm. But at night, suddenly, the way the light from the hall hit that chair, that looked like somebody to me sitting there. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified, and I fell asleep terrified. And then next morning I went, and it was just my old clothes. <laughs> so that's what... So that's what a suggestion is, you know. It's the boogeyman, uh, a, an old coat comes to life and kidnaps this little girl. And in every every country has a boogeyman. In French, they call it something else. In Japan, they have a name for boogeyman. So this work strikes a very large chord. Uh, so it's not about facts. And so the most interesting work are things that touch you, but you really can't explain why. Mm -hmm. uh, so they should be a hint. Uh, there's this one of the, it's called um, hmm, Two Women, One's Looking Out the Window and One's Looking Away. Oh, certain words must be said. And it's about two women, uh, two lesbians who are breaking up, but they, they can't say the words. And it talks about, so they decided uh, maybe somebody will the title, certain words must be said. Maybe somebody would send them a letter that would say the words, or maybe, you know, they'd get a a telegram, or in some way, because they couldn't say, although they had said the words to themselves a thousand times, uh, they, they didn't have the courage to say it out loud. So now they waited. What else could they do? You know, or or this photograph is by proof. You know, I love that one too. That really strikes a lot of people because it's it proves that you know how many marriages end in a divorce. Everybody has a sad love affair that hurt a lot and it's over. But then you can say, look, no, but look, you know, when we first met, there we are. She's holding me. We loved each other. Look, I, that that's my proof. That's one of the best things of photography. You know, one of the most amazing <clears throat> things I think about that picture is that it does so many things at once, and it. Um, it, it's about what it's about, but it's also about photography, mm -hmm. and I think that's what's uh, that's what's really great. It challenges the conventions of how we usually look at pictures and how we believe them. Yeah, yeah. If work doesn't touch you in some way, if it doesn't transcend mere description, photographs are all descriptions of something, a moment, a place, a house, a tree, or something. But uh, and if the photographer doesn't bring insight into what he's uh, photographing. The bottom line being, for somebody who professionally gay, he brought no insight into the subject. He showed black men with big dicks, yeah, you know, guys in leather, uh, close-ups of jocks, self-portrait with a whip up his ass. Yeah, you know, Reverend Falwell could not have described homosexuality uh, anymore, uh, and uh, and uh, he did it for him. But my description of homosexuality. Uh, has nothing to do with that. Uh, my dis I believe in the legitimacy of affection between people, and if, and if it affect if, and if it ends in uh, sex, that's terrific. You know, it's not about sex. Oh, incidentally, they also like each other. And so to me, it's about love. Sex is part of love. You know? mm -hmm. But what I'm talking about is, um, for example, AIDS. Mm -hmm. When people photographed AIDS, there were always Nicholas Nixon was photographing people in bed looking God. 
you know, people with sarcosis and, you know, and the facts of AIDS. But nobody would get into uh, what does it feel like to have AIDS. My bottom line is what does something feel like, not what does it look like. Mm -hmm. So I did one which is very romantic about death. It's called the, uh, it's called AIDS, I, I think. And it's just the guy with his head on the table sleeping and in four pictures I kept adding more and more flowers until he's covered in flowers and under each picture says A-I-D-S so I'm trying to get not into the description of shock but the feeling the feeling of AIDS mm -hmm. and uh, I never photographed I did one picture of a guy in drag and it was a sequence where I think it was called The Mirror. It's, it's a guy sitting at a, ta at a piano with a mirror, and he pick starts picking up the mirror, and as he raises the mirror with each successive picture, he begins to become a woman. You know, he, the next picture, he suddenly has a wig. Next picture, and when, when he finally looks at himself in the mirror, he's, you know, thrilled, because mm -hmm. that's how he sees himself. And then he puts the mirror back down, and with each successive picture, you know, he and he ends up being the guy sitting there by himself, you know, without the mirror. So there are all kinds of... I keep wanting... To, I'm not saying this well, but the idea is that just don't show me what something looks like. Mm -hmm. Tell me what it feels like to be... So to photograph people in drag, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Why don't you photograph one of these guys in the middle of the afternoon and they're sitting and they're watching TV and there's their wig on the floor and there's their dog, you know, and... What about that yeah. afternoon thing when they're not all glam and, you know, and they have a cup of coffee and there's some old cigarette butts in the thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's always the frontier. The frontier is not shock and awe. The frontier is awe. I, I read that it was you that brought Jack Woody, George Platt, Linus' yes. photos. Yeah. I did a little book called Amish to Kofafi. Yeah. And we had a show, and it was being shown at the Nicholas Wilder Gallery in L.A. Yeah. So I went out for the show. And Jack worked there. He was worked in the gallery, and we had lunch one day. We hit it off right away because we were both book nuts. Yeah. And so I, I mentioned George Platt Lyons. He had never heard of George Platt Lyons. I was so shocked. You know, I said, how could you not know George Platt Lyons? Yeah. And then about... Six months later or a year later, suddenly this gorgeous book comes out on George Platt Lyons. <laughs> and as I recall inside, he mentions that I was the one who introduced him to George Platt Lyons. Yeah. So it was a much smaller world yeah. then. Is that how you started working with him, doing, uh, doing books? Later, when he began to do books, and then we got together, and I did seven books with him. Mm -hmm. And we got along very well. And Jack, he once taught, said, think of us as being your, your publishers, you know, and we could... Do anything you want, you know. He always did such beautiful printing. Yeah. He I mean, defined, you no, know, he defined that whole genre. I mean, now there are lots and lots of big picture, beautiful big picture books, especially with naked guys all over the place. But yeah. you know, it's not. A, that's what annoys me. Gay guys are so much involved in what's well, like a, a uh, Bruce Weber picture. Somebody will show me Bruce Weber picture of some hunky kid. Uh, leaning against the wall. Yeah. And they'll say, isn't that a beautiful photograph? I said, no, 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 no. It's a beautiful guy. It's a very ordinary photograph. Yeah. It's a nothing photograph, somebody leaning against the wall. Uh, it's when you you have to bring insight 
into why is that guy be, what are we what are we responding to you know so i'm i always want to know why yeah and and that's the failure because 90% of all gay photography is about beauty about guys guys with the biggest pecs win you know mm-hmm. and i'm thrilled i never dreamt in my lifetime that uh, gay would be accepted to the great extent on the day in june when the supreme court announced you know legitimacy of homosexuality uh i wrote in my little book gay okay day (laughs) so that's my title for the official you know but to go but fred and i got married we've been together 56 years but we got married about five years ago oh wow just before he started to before the alzheimer's began to kick in and I'm so glad we did it because uh, I don't believe in marriage. I I, uh, I think marriage is a failed institution. You know, over 50% of marriages, I understand, end in divorce. Would you go to a doctor if you knew that 50, over 50% of his operations failed? Would you go to a restaurant if the chef burned over 50% of his dinners? <laughs> no. Right. Yeah, so I think gay people should invent their own category. We didn't, you know, we shouldn't rely on those old. When somebody says, I'm the husband, oh, please, what does that make you? No, it's disrespectful to being gay, attaching those old, tired, heterosexual labels. So, how come it was important for you to get married? Oh, because I wanted the financial benefit. (laughs) Are you kidding? I'm going to work the system. I mean, we would have huge tax bills. Uh huh. In fact, we took out insurance just to cover tax bills early on. Really? Absolutely, yeah. Huh. I don't need, you know, the the church or the state to tell me that what that what we have is legitimate. Yeah. I wanted to go back to uh, we were just talking about, uh, um, or we were getting into uh, the surface of images and portraits and whatnot. And I, w- I wanted to ask you about your your approach to portraiture, mm-hmm. and if that's changed over the years. I'm working on a new portrait book now, and I've developed some ideas about what portraits... I have something called stand and stare. Now, stand and stare is my definition of the typical portrait, or sit and stare. It started with Nadar, mm-hmm. you know, and ended up and goes all the way to Arbus, and almost every portrait you see is stand and stare. So what are we looking at? We're looking at a description of somebody... Am I my nose? No. You know, am I my ears? Unfortunately, yes. But the thing about it is it's description. Uh, so I have something which I call the prose portrait. Uh, the prose portrait is a portrait of somebody where you don't necessarily see the person, but it's about the nature of the person. So that I would say most of the portrait I did with Magritte were done in the vernacular of Magritte's work. The best ones, you know, like him sitting in an easel. That's a Magritte painting. The window. Uh, the double exposures with him three times, two of them walking away from himself. These are all in the vocabulary of Magritte. For example, the New York Times asked a series of photographers, five photographers, to do a portrait for their magazine, and a self-portrait. And I did a picture of myself over the back of my shoulder, and I'm holding a book open, and in the book it says, I think about thinking. So to me, that's a prose portrait, because it's not about, what's interesting about me is not my face, it's my mind. And I read, 
and I think about Thinky. Mm-hmm. So that's my portrait. You know, who cares what I look like? It's nothing to do. So it's much more difficult to do a prose portrait. Why did you do uh, Cortez in the manner of David Hockney? Oh, that was interesting because um, I used to have my work done at a guy named Igor Bach. Mm-hmm. And he he was a great printer. He printed all the Cortez. He printed all the Romain Vishniaks. He was a great printer. And in his studio, his office, he had a this chair that looked like the same chair, a sofa, that Hockney used when he did the portrait of, uh, who was it? Geldzeller mm-hmm. and his friend. Mm-hmm. So I said to Cortez, let's do this portrait using the same sofa in the same relationship and he wouldn't do it he hated hockney because he said hockney ripped him off (laughs) curtis hated everything Uh but he hated hockney because hockney did a picture of a guy swimming underwater in in a swimming pool Mm -hmm. and you could see the waves and the guy and curtis did a photograph like that of a guy swimming and he claimed that curtis hockney ripped him off Uh uh-huh and so I said, well, this is our chance to rip off Hockney. <laughs> and then he did it. Once I said, we could rip off Hockney. <laughs> he liked that. He loved the idea. They're all little tidbits behind all these photographs, I suppose. Yeah, there are. How about the Pasolini one? I always found that Well, that was interesting, yeah. Um, I had a wonderful deal with Condé Nast, and I would, uh, I would get a call from an editor and say, Pasolini's in town. Uh, if you can get to the hotel between two and three, you know, you can... So I would get there, and the guy from Time had just left, and at three, the guy from Newsweek was coming or someplace. So I had an hour to do something, and um, I used to like to take celebrities on the streets and just work with what I could find. So we went out of the hotel, and I turned the corner, and between the Samaritz and the building next door was a passageway, and I looked in there, and there were these piles of boxes... So I took him in there, and I had him sit there by the boxes. And then, luckily, a young guy came by. I think he was pushing a handcart or something, and he had a white jacket on, and the guy just walked through the frame. And given that Pasolini was murdered by some young guy he picked up, you know, mm-hmm. and the kind of sordidness of the space between two buildings and all these stacks of boxes it was a perfect i thought now you could call that a prose portrait Mm -hmm. because it's about him in you know it could have been a dump it could have been some Mm -hmm. shady louche uh it's a pretty it's a pretty crazy connection i mean like this with strange foreshadowing yeah yeah and uh anyway so that's how I'm, i'm always very good about picking up on what i find yeah so that's, I guess, where the chance, the, the chance yeah. aspect comes in. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea is there, but then you respond yeah, to whatever. Yeah, and it's, and it's also, I suppose, thinking out of the box, mm-hmm. you know, because my references aren't Penn and Avedon. I'm my own reference. Mm-hmm. And so when I think of portraits, I don't think of uh, anatomy. Mm-hmm. I think of, uh, it's like I had a terrible time with um, Christo because mm-hmm. he's so easy to photograph given what he does. And the picture I got is okay, but it, it, it's a little bit too predictable for mm-hmm. me. You know, I like surprises.
So what are you working on now? What's the next book? The uh, portrait book. The portrait book, yeah. And the movies are very exciting. Tell me a little more about the movies, about what you've been... They're small films, you know, five to seven minutes or something. Yeah. They're all on different subjects. And when I did my first sequence, I thought, what else could I do? And, and I did the first movie, I thought, what else could I do? And I've got ten different ones now. It's my nature, that's why I function in the world. Mm-hmm. But uh, the last one is called The Invention of the Universe. Mm-hmm. And it's about the invention of the universe. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, there's one called Are You Still a Faggot? And it's about a grandfather uh, whose grandson is gay. And the grandfather, when he f- the grandson told the family, he told the, son, the grandson, don't come back. I don't want to see you till you turn straight. Yeah. So the kid comes back and the grandfather's napping and he wakes him up. And, and the first thing he says to the kid, are you still a faggot? What was it like coming out to your family? I never really did. You, know, you didn't? Uh, my generation, we didn't do uh, come out. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, it was just suddenly assumed. Did you dread that? Like, did you dread it? If yeah, you yeah it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, especially my generation. Are you kidding? Well, my generation, I mean, uh, my on. generation too. Like, um, you're three generations. And it's still an uncomfortable thing. Well, it is uncomfortable. We've made a lot of progress, but, yeah, it's, but still, it's Yeah, yeah. but it's interior. Yeah. It's interior. Politically, it's great. But... We're still carrying all that baggage with us. You yeah. know? It's like a fat person that loses a lot of weight. They still see themselves as being fat no matter how thin they are. Yeah. So a lot of gay people still carry their fat, their gay fat with them, you know. Yeah. It's hard to believe that it, it's a okay gay day. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good note to end on. No, oh, thank you. Yeah. Well thank you very much for uh, for having us here. It's a real pleasure. I love being had. <laughs> Bye. Thanks a lot. That was my conversation with photographer Dwayne Michaels. Dwayne continues to work and live in New York. This episode of Magic Hour was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and Michelle Macklin. It was edited by Crystal Duhame. And a special thanks to Lenny Pierre Ramos. For more information on the show and Dwayne Michaels' photography, visit magichourpodcast.org. Tune in next time to hear Ed Pinar and Melissa Catanese two photographers based in Pittsburgh. Both Ed and Melissa have their own practices, but they operate Spaces Corners together, a storefront and gallery space dedicated to the photo book. This episode will be in two weeks, so listen then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.